This is Zach Driscoll, and I'd like to welcome you to the Real Men Podcast. To find more Bible teaching and content like this, visit markdriscoll.org. And don't forget to set aside a good chunk of time, because my dad has a habit of preaching lengthy sermons. All right, thank you, men, for joining us. It's an honor to have you both live and uh, online. And just if you're new, kind of here's how it works at Real Men. I, I tend to preach through books of the Bible most of the time. Right now, we're in the book of Daniel. I'll preach a sermon on Sunday, and then as we get together for men, I'll do a summary and overview, an application for men, and then we'll break you into discussion time around the table and also time for prayer. We meet every week. Uh, the uh, women in the church and the women's life groups, the various families and the family life groups, the students in the student life groups are doing the exact same thing. We're all going through the same teaching together. And part of that is as you as men, head of household, leading your families, we just feel, and I'm very convinced that you want to lead your family and you're just trying to figure out the how-to. And so if you and your wife and your kids, if you are a family as I am, I've got a, a wife and five kids, Uh, If you're all learning the same thing, then you as husbands and fathers, you could talk about it, lead the discussion. And my encouragement is the same thing that's happening around the tables, we want to happen around your dining room tables. Ask questions, have dialogue, pray for each other. It's what we do in our family. And it is really the center of our home and life. That being said, I'll catch you up to speed. We're in uh, Daniel chapter two. So Daniel's 12 chapters. I'll do one sermon each week. We'll cover one chapter each week. I'll summarize Daniel one, and then we'll jump into Daniel two. So the story of Daniel one is this. It's 605 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. So go back 2,600 years. It's because our God is eternal and he works in all times. He's over all times. God's people had been rebellious and defiant for 490 years. So God's really patient, way more patient than your dad was, amen. None of your dads waited 490 years to spank you. Well, God ultimately finally pulled out the wooden spoon. It's a place called Babylon. And he used it to discipline correctly and not without love, but for their well-being, his children, his people, the nation of Israel. So this godless nation, Babylon, led by this counterfeit king who thinks he's a god, Nebuchadnezzar come in, they conquer Israel. They go into the temple, they loot it. They take all the gold and the plunder that belong to the Lord. And then they take the best able-bodied residents, particularly the young men, as kidnapped slaves, prisoners of war, uh, they take them back to Babylon. So these guys have a 700 mile walk. And with them are some young men who are chosen for high IQ, high EQ, uh, social sensibility, and they come from royal family and they're really attractive. And they get the grand prize of being able to work for King Nebuchadnezzar in his court, surrounded by a beautiful harem which sounds really interesting if you're a teenage boy as he was, but then what they did, they castrated him. And so this is not his go forward plan. This is is not good. And then they wanna change his diet with a counterfeit communion, eating the king's food and drinking the king's drink. And so he becomes a vegetarian. So just do the math. Now, modern day Babylon is Iraq. So just, just run the math. You're a teenage kid. You get abducted from the Christian school in Scottsdale, Arizona. They castrate you and make you a vegetarian in Iraq. That's where he's at. Right? Whatever day you had, it's not that bad. Amen? I mean, just Iraq vegetarian eunuch. I mean, any of those three and I'm out. You give me all three. They're gonna try and put them in a furnace and I'd be like, can we please get there as soon as possible? I want this all to be over. And so, you know, that's kind of the story of Daniel. He's a teenage kid and he's just put into a horrific, horrible environment. 
and, and his whole life is upside down. So then what happens in chapter two, there is uh, for King Nebuchadnezzar, a problem. He has a dream and he can't interpret the dream because it's a dream from the Lord and his sort of counterfeit spiritual religious leaders, they can't interpret it. So then he um, puts out a death sentence and decree. Ultimately, many lives are at risk. Daniel gets the ability to then interpret the dream. So he prays, God reveals the dream and the interpretation. Uh, in the middle of prayer, he gathers his buddies and they praise God and they have a worship session. And then the story continues in Daniel chapter two, where then um, he brings the prophecy, which is the interpretation to the king. And the promise is of the kingdom of God coming to rule and reign through the Lord Jesus. And then he's ultimately promoted. So that's the storyline of Daniel two. Nebuchadnezzar has a problem. Daniel and his buddies, they pray, they praise God. God gives them a prophecy. God gives them a promise about the end of days and the coming of Jesus, and they are promoted. And what I wanna do in Daniel 2, he's a great case study for what a godly man looks like when number one, life doesn't go the way he had hoped. And let me just say, um, any man who is alive has not had life go the way he had hoped, amen? I mean, if you're here and your life went the way you hoped, you're a liar. That's what I'm saying. No man, no man's life goes exactly the way he hoped, okay? So what do you do when you're a man and you do love God, but your life doesn't go the way you had hoped and you find yourself in a culture that is politically, socially, morally, completely opposed to everything you believe. And there is a lot of pressure to conform and there is a lot of pressure to deny your deep convictions and your relationship with God. That's the story of Daniel. What makes the story of Daniel really quite epic for men, it actually covers 69 years of his life. So in chapter one, he's a teenager, high school kid. By the very, very end, he's in his 80s. And so we have all of those ages with us here tonight from young men to older men. And this covers the entirety of a man's life. And it gives us hope that you can have a relationship with God and some buddies for the journey, remain faithful to the Lord through the totality of life. For that to happen, you're gonna need some tools. Various of you guys for your job, you have tools. And these tools allow you to accomplish your job. The same is true of your life as it is for your vocation. Uh, I'll give you an example. My grandpa George was a diesel mechanic. Uh, I, just I talk a lot about my grandpa George. I loved him with all my heart. He died when I was 10. Um, and I forgive him because I got his bangs. I, I looked at a photo of my grandpa recently. I was like, I got his bangs. I love him, but man, you, I, my dad's got better hair than me. Somebody asked, why you grow a beard? Why? It's to distract your attention from the fact I don't have any bangs. Um, and I don't have a hair growth problem, I have a hair distribution problem because I could braid my feet, but I don't have bangs. So my, my grandpa George, <laughs> my, it's, true, it's true, I got dreadlocks in my boots right now. I'm just telling you how it's going. My, <laughs> my grandpa George, I loved him with all my heart. He was a big guy, so he wore overalls, gave up on anything with a waist. And uh, he'd just eat dinner and let the overalls out. And I love my grandpa George and he was a diesel mechanic, so he had his tools. And when he retired, I as a little boy spent a lot of time at his house and he got into woodworking. So he taught me, Marky, here's how you use a bandsaw and here's how you use a skill saw and here's how you use a drill. And, and so he taught me how to use all these tools. And I had a lot of time with my grandpa in the garage building stuff, some of the best memories of my life as he's teaching me to use his tools. Similarly, my dad was a union drywaller and I remember he always had a big bucket of tools and, uh, and he would pull his big bucket of tools, throw it in his truck, he had his tool belt. And, uh, and my dad was a guy who built stuff. He was a, he was a carpenter, construction worker, then he was a general contractor, then a building inspector. 
and, uh, and, and he was a guy who was great with his tools. And I learned from my dad, because I'd go to the job site ever since I was a little boy, my dad taught me how to use the various tools. And some of you ask, oh, so do you work on your house? No, I don't, I forgot everything my dad taught me, but he did teach me how to use the tools. I'm really good at hiring people who know how to use tools. And, um, and the point is that, you know, to be good at your job, especially if you're in a trade, you gotta figure out how to use your tools. And the key to most trades is figuring out how to use your tools. For you guys that are in IT or tech, that's certain software, right? Every one of us as men has tools that we work with. For your life with God, I wanna pull out from Daniel chapter two, six tools that Daniel and his buddies use for their walk with God under very difficult circumstances when life has not gone the way they had anticipated. So I'll just do a quick run through summary. First thing you need, godly friends, godly friends. Godly friends. And I know some of you are taking photos. You're welcome to. Uh, if you go to markdriscoll.org, there is a six and a half thousand word introduction and overview roughly of Daniel. You can sign up for five days a week, daily devotions. I'll send it free to your email and inbox. The notes for the sermon are posted there weekly and the notes for real men are posted there. It's all there. So if you're looking for it, that's where it's at. And it's free, you get what you pay for, so lower your expectations. Nonetheless, Daniel and Daniel chapter two, he has godly friends. And so what we see early on in Daniel, there's this crisis. And the first thing that he does, he pulls his buddies together. He pulls his buddies together. And he asks them, hey guys, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray with me because I need God to answer this prayer. And then they gather together and God answers the prayer. And ultimately they end up sort of worshiping, praising God, having church together uh, as friends. And like I said on Sunday, the key for a man is to get your crew before you get your crisis. Most men, they don't have a crew and then they get their crisis. And what happens then is you don't have the relational capital or trust to invite others in to walk whatever that path that's set before you is. One of the reasons that we're doing this ministry in this way is because men need to be in relationship. And most men are not very relational. They're not very relational. And what happens is you, you don't feel like you need relationship until some sort of crisis happens. And then you're like, I don't know what to do. I need prayer. I need wise counsel. I need somebody to hold me accountable. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, I've never been here. And all of us reach seasons of life. Like some of you, you're gonna get married. That's the first time. You're gonna be a dad. That's the first time you're gonna, have grandkids, that's the first time. You're gonna start a company, that's the first time. It can even be good things, but you've never been there, so you need somebody to walk with. Sometimes it's very difficult things, like they are dealing with. They're under a death sentence in Babylon, which as I said, is modern day Iraq. And so he gets his godly friends together. And let me say this, if you don't intentionally pick the men that you're gonna confide in and do life with, and it's a small number for Daniel and his buddies, it's just three other guys. So it's four guys. These guys that fit in a golf cart. Right? Sometimes you think about, oh, I need a whole bunch of guys. Actually, if you can fill up a golf cart with guys who love God and will pray for you, you're doing amazing. You're doing good enough to make it 69 years through Babylon if you can just get a golfing foursome to stick together and walk with God and pray for each other. That's sort of the, the narrative underlying story of Daniel. But if you don't pick godly friends, what you'll end up doing, or, or what many of us do, we leak or vent. We wait until something is so frustrating, it just sort of comes out to whoever's in front of us. How many of you have leaked or vented at work or with your wife or with your kids? You're like, yeah, that wasn't the best person to talk to because once I vented, I'm inviting. Venting leads to inviting. 
If I'm venting what I'm dealing with, I'm inviting you in. How many of you have done that? You've been frustrated. You didn't know who to talk to. You didn't really have your crew before your crisis. You just kind of let it out. And then you're like, oh, I didn't want your opinion. Why? Don't tell me what to do. Your wife hates you too. You're not wise counsel, right? Uh, <laughs> and, so, and so ultimately what you're looking for is God, where are the guys that I could have as brothers? And, and let me say, one of the things that, that sort of mitigates against this is something that I'll call the mentor myth. And the mentor myth is somewhere out there is the guy that'll be my go-to guy for whatever I need. The only guy that is that guy is Jesus. Every other guy has deficiencies, limitations, blind spots, and shortcomings. You don't need a mentor, you need a bullpen. This is gonna be my encouragement for men. I uh, just heard a testimony a moment ago from a pitcher. Jeff, did you play in the MLB? Minor leagues? Congratulations, that's better than me. I made it through high school and then nobody would let me play anymore. So you did great. Um, but I was a pitcher and for a while I was in the bullpen. And if, you, if you're a baseball fan, it's almost spring training. We're gonna do a game over at uh, Salt River uh, Fields coming up. In baseball, a bullpen is a whole bunch of specialists. There's the long reliever, short reliever, closer. There's the righty, there's the lefty, there's the guy who throws sidearm. And so it's all about the matchups, getting the right guy out of the bullpen for the matchup. What you need as men is not a mentor, but a bullpen. This guy's good with marriage. This guy's good with business. That guy knows the Bible. That guy's kids love him. That guy went through an incredibly difficult life season, but he's, he's really grown through that and it's, it's made him better, not bitter. So you look for these guys. And what I tend to do with these guys is say, I need you in my bullpen. And that, that doesn't mean I need to meet with you every single week, but it means if I need you and I call you, if I call the bullpen, are you gonna run on the field and help me? And I've got a short list of guys like that. So what Daniel's got with his godly friends, he's got his bullpen. He knows who to call when he needs something, when he has prayer and they, and they call him. And let me just say this as well, when you're picking your godly friends and I wanna commend you for being here because this is one of the most important things you can do is find those guys to walk with. That ultimately, if you're married though, um, make these decisions with your spouse. So Grace and I, she doesn't have female friends that I don't approve of. I don't have male friends that she doesn't approve of. We don't have couple friends that we don't approve of. Sometimes what happens, you're like, he's a great guy. And the wife is like, no, he's not, right? Let me just say this, your conscience lives in your wife. If you're looking for your conscience, go find your wife. For most of us, our conscience lives in our wife. And so I don't have any guys that I confide in or in my bullpen or I call or disclose private information to that Grace doesn't know of and approve so that she feels safe. And we agree about that in advance. Cause how many of you had this? You divulge something, you tell your wife, hey, I was talking to Tony. And she's like, you what? You talked to Tony? You can't talk to Tony. Well, he was there and breathing, so he qualified. Okay, you need a better plan. Okay, so number one, godly friends. Number two, prayer. What he does is he gets his buddies together to pray. That's what he does in Daniel 2, 17 through 19. They get together to pray. And prayer becomes a major theme in Daniel's life. Uh, it says in chapter six, verse 10, he prayed three times a day and he gets in trouble for doing so. Chapter nine of Daniel, if you're reading ahead, he's got this long prayer that gets answered by the angel Gabriel, who brought a message to him and later brought the message to Mary of the birth of Jesus. And I was thinking about, um, prayer, we're gonna spend time at the end praying together. And it's a remarkable thing when men pray. We see here in Daniel, four guys come together to pray and everything changes in an entire nation and the course of human history. 
right? It's like, well, why don't more men pray? Well, I think as men, we wonder what good prayer will do. And I was thinking of how to explain prayer in a way that men would receive it. How many of you are military veterans? You raise your hand. Can we just thank them for their service? Thank you. Right. So think of it like a soldier. The Bible says that our, our battle is not just against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and spirits, that at work behind culture is the spirit of Babylon seeking to do to you as it did to Daniel. That is to, to emasculate you, to wreck you, to enslave you, and, and to destroy you. That's what the spirit of Babylon is always doing. So you think of it in terms of a military campaign. I was doing a little research on it. And, and most wars are won or lost, contingent upon the quality of communication. The better your communication, the more likely you will defeat your enemy and you will accomplish your military objective. Uh, made a few notes. Alexander, Hannibal, and Caesar, the way they would communicate information in a battle and the reason they were such great generals, they would have guys who were distance runners. They would give them a message and they would run it and run it and run it. And so this was the way to communicate from the supply line to the front line. As military communication increased, you guys have probably heard about Genghis Khan. He was one of the ones who invented homing pigeons. So he would train these birds to fly great distances over the battles, or if you had to run a message through a battle, that's very different. And this, uh, this mechanism would allow messages to be delivered at quick pace time over the enemy. That allowed Genghis Khan to conquer tremendous lands. Uh, at sea, uh, if, how many of you are, in the Coast Guard or in the Navy? Anybody in the Coast Guard or Navy? Yeah, so, oh yeah, and what is your rank by the way? It's pretty amazing. A Lieutenant Commander in the Navy. And so thank you. Tell me about flags in the Navy. Exactly, you're helping me, brother. How many men do you oversee so we could be praying for you? Your total command is 300 men. They're, they're honored to have you, we're honored to have you as well. But what he's saying is, is absolutely helpful. Um, I can't go on a boat, I get sick. I'll just be honest with you. Um, I went on a boat once, I went on a cruise and I was dizzy for a month. I, I was dizzy and I went in and I got a diagnosis. They said I had Melde de Barkman syndrome which only happens to menopausal women after a cruise. <laughs> I was like in my 30s. I was like, that exp explains the weight gain and the moodiness. I guess I've hit menopause. So, um, so I, I wouldn't make it in the Navy, but I appreciate your service. So what he's, what he's saying is, and that's actually a true story. Um, and so what, what he's saying is, you know, in, in the Navy, for ships to communicate, they would use flags. And then eventually they had lights and they would communicate in that way. It's just various ways of communicating amidst the context of a battle. Well, then you got the telegraph and then you got Morse code and then the radio comes into existence and then wired phones. But lo and behold, sometimes the enemy cuts those lines. So that's how we got wireless field phones. That leads to the printed telegraph, which leads to FM radio, which leads to television, which is used a lot for propaganda and ultimately culminates in the internet and other forms of communication. The whole point is, if you're in a war, you need a, you need a secure communication channel with headquarters so that you can get directives because you don't have perspective on the whole battle. All you see is the fight in front of you, but by communicating with headquarters, you get perspective. Prayer for a man is battle communication. 
with, with Daniel and his buddies, they are in a war against Satan, demons, and Babylon. There is a death sentence bounty on their head. They need to communicate with headquarters, what do you want us to do? And God tells them exactly, shows them exactly what to do. If men will see that they are living amidst a war, as Daniel did with Babylon, it increases the likelihood that we will pray. And when we pray, we're literally calling headquarters, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords and saying, what do I need to know? What do I need to do? What do you see that I do not see? And so they pray together. And that's ultimately what we're gonna do tonight. Number three, they worship after the problem. And then there is the prayer, they get the prophecy and they praise God. And so they get together in Daniel chapter two, verses 19 through 30, and I'm doing a quick flyby summary. They get together and they worship God. They praise God for who he is and what he's done. And so I just wanna encourage you men, when we first started the church, we could not get men to worship. I mean, literally, I mean, it was, guys, hands in their pocket, which is like, even if the Holy Spirit's up, even if the Holy Spirit shows up, he's not gonna get me. Like, I am not raising my hands. I'm not clapping, I'm not singing. And uh, I had a pastor come from another church in the Valley, great pastor, great church. And he was visiting us on a Sunday and uh, he gave me a call. He said, uh, one of the things I noticed about your church, he said, I've never seen men who worship. He said, in our church, we can't get the men to sing or raise their hands. I said, well, that's where we started. If the dead in Christ rise first, that'd have been our guys. That's where we started. I said, but uh, they, have, they have come along. And he said, that's amazing. It was super encouraging. So I wanna encourage you men for the progress. But the reason that men need to worship, it allows us to be emotional and relational. Emotional and relational. Most men are not emotional, right? Your emotional spectrum is angry or asleep. Those are your options, right? Like, that's not really that emotional. Um, and you're not that relational. And the reason that some men struggle with worship is it's relational, right? You're, you're responding to a God who loves you and knows you, he's a father, but it's also emotional. Sometimes men don't worship because it's like, well, I start feeling things like guilt or joy and it's weird. Well, just keep going with that, right? Just keep that moving. And what happens is that worship is a way that God opens a man up to be more rightly healthy emotionally, and then also of being more emotional to be more relational. Some of your wives have said it recently, my, my husband's praying, my husband's worshiping, and he's a lot nicer to me. Okay, that, that's because this relationship with God being more emotional and relational in a healthy way, it then impacts and affects the other relationships. So you can be emotional and relational with the people in your wife, including in your life, including your wife and your women and your children. And I think one of the reasons that men don't sing in public is because we don't do it anywhere else. How many of you are from more of a Hispanic or Latino culture? Anybody? Okay. What happens at a soccer match? The dudes sing. It's the only place on earth that men sing publicly. It's the only thing I've ever seen. They'll sing the whole game, right? We're white guys, we don't do that. We're not singing, that's just not our thing, right? And so what happens is we're not used to singing publicly. How many of you guys sing in your truck a little bit, but it sounds like you were captured by Al Qaeda and something painful is happening. <laughs> okay, that's me. Make a joyful noise, I'm the noise part, right? That's me. Um, the reason that sometimes men don't sing is because it's, it's something new and it's public and it's emotional and it's relational and, and exactly right. Because if men will worship, everyone will worship. That's why it's so hard for men to worship. If men will worship, everyone will worship. 
If men worship, women and children worship. They do, statistically, I'm just telling you what is fact. And I'll tell you, if other men walk in the room and they're like, these guys are different. They seem to believe that Jesus is actually alive and they're excited about him and they're public about it. And they're as excited as, you know, Clemson versus Ohio State fans at the bowl championship series. They're very excited about something, which then will compel others to consider our God and savior, Jesus Christ. People don't just believe what you believe, they get excited about what you get excited about. If you're excited about Jesus and you're worshiping Jesus, the people in your sphere of influence, they're gonna start to get excited about Jesus. And that's what worship is. It is to ignite that passion for the things of God, which then diminishes the passion that we have toward the things that are opposed to God. If you're worshiping God, your temptation to find your passion and pleasures in other areas is diminished because that longing for worship that you were created for is met in your relationship with God. So these guys get together, the godly friends get together, they pray, they worship. And I want you to see that what we're trying to do here is just principally the same thing. And then they receive revelation, Daniel 2, 31 through 43. Uh, the king had a dream. God gives the interpretation of the dream to Daniel and he gets revelation from God. And what this means is this, you can have experiences in your life, but you don't know how to interpret them apart from revelation from God. Is Satan attacking me? Am I in a fallen world? Is God punishing me? What is happening? Right? You don't know apart from revelation. And uh, in Revelation in the Bible, it exists in two categories. There's general revelation, Romans one and two, I'll do a quick riff. Um, externally, revelation is in creation. God is orderly, God is an architect, God is a designer, God is beautiful. The world that God made reveals something of who God is. Internally, you've also got general revelation in your conscience. Even some of you, before you knew the Lord Jesus, you just knew that certain things were wrong. It's like, that's wrong because God made you with a sense of revelation in your conscience. General revelation is available to everyone, but it doesn't give us enough information to meet Jesus Christ and to be saved from our sin. So God has, in addition to that, special revelation. Angels, they are in the book of Daniel. Dreams, they are in the book of Daniel. Bible, it's in the book of Daniel, and Daniel, of course, is a book of the Bible. Ultimately, God's special revelation is through Jesus Christ. And so what I would say to you is, you need to have an intentional plan to be in God's word and get God's word into you. When Daniel was a kid growing up in Israel, he would have memorized verses and books of the Bible. He did not know that in high school, he's gonna get kidnapped, castrated, and sentenced to life in Babylon. He didn't know what the future held, but he was prepared for it in advance because he spent a lot of time in the word of God. As soon as things happen, he knows what's biblical, what's not biblical, what's godly, what's ungodly, what's right, what's wrong. And what I would say for you is this, what you learn today is for your test tomorrow, okay? And you don't know what your test is gonna be. So I would tell you this, make sure you study hard. Because when you're in the middle of the test, it's too late to study for the test. You can't study for the test and take the test. Daniel had been studying for the test and then he is prepared to take the test. So my question to you practically would be, how's your time in God's word? And if you don't have a Bible reading plan, there's something called YouVersion, it's an app. It has all kinds of Bible reading plans. It, it just makes it super easy. 
Uh, in addition, you can even get the audio Bible. So you're driving in your vehicle. How many of you drive in your vehicle and listen to political talk radio? You find that makes you happier and more joyful and peaceful? No, no, no. You start using your horn and fingers that should just remain not saluting, things happen. And so ultimately, maybe redeem your commute and say, okay, I'm gonna put the audio Bible on and listen to the word of God instead. Or maybe I'll put worship music on and I'll sing to the Lord instead. Or I'll put a podcast on from Pastor Mark because I wanna get yelled at, stuff like that. (laughs) And what I would say as well is, um, I have never met a man that spent time in God's word and regretted it. Every man lives with regrets, amen? What are the things we regret? I've never met a man who said, I spent a lot of time studying the Bible and I really regret that. Every other area of a man's life, he lives with regrets. I'm just telling you, the more time you spend in God's word, the clearer God will reveal himself to you and the clearer the decision-making in your life will become. And some of you guys are just Bible veterans. We have old guys here with beat up Bibles. That's awesome. Uh, We also have guys that don't even have a Bible. So one of my questions today is gonna be, do you need a Bible? Uh, gave a guy here last week his very first Bible. And uh, you know what? There's nothing wrong with a Bible on your tablet, your phone, but there is something about not getting email notifications and checking your social media and just kind of going old school without any interruptions or distractions, okay? And so if you are a guy who needs to know how to study and read the Bible, ask one of the guys at the table or in the room who knows that and let them share with you some things that they do in ways that you could start to grow in that endeavor. And what I would say is, men, is don't be embarrassed of where you are. We're not looking for progress, just perfection. So if you, if you, you know. Oh, no, no, I said that backwards, didn't I? I went to public school. I do that sometimes. I was like, why is that funny? I was supposed to be encouraging. Yeah, all you gotta be is perfect. Other than that, we're just gonna put you in a fiery furnace. That's where we're going with Daniel. So no. Uh, We're not looking for perfection, but progress. So wherever you're at, did I do it right that time? All right, yeah, okay. Um, So wherever you're at, just, okay, if you're starting at zero, get to one. If you're at 100 in your Bible knowledge, get to 101. Whatever it is, just figure out how you can continue to hear from God. Last few things, um, access to King Jesus and the kingdom of God. The whole driving uh, narrative of Daniel 1 and 2 is this prophetic promise that he gets of the coming of King Jesus. And he prophesies these four successive kingdoms, Babylon is the kingdom of gold, and then there is a kingdom of silver, and um, that I think was uh, the Medo-Persian empire, and then the Greek empire, uh, and then ultimately it comes down to the Roman empire, but ultimately it's all about the last kingdom, the kingdom of God. The kingdom where our king is Jesus Christ. And he says more of this in Daniel 7, where Jesus returns on a cloud like a king, And the whole driving narrative is that there is a world, trust me in this, that is real as the world that you see and it's a world you don't see. That just as there are people in this room, in that realm, there are also divine beings. Some of them love the Lord. They're angels, sons of God, divine counsel, other names. And there are unholy, ungodly, unhelpful beings that are demons, fallen angels that are with Satan. And the point is that God rules and reigns in that unseen realm. And that what is happening sometimes in our world, it is implicated and affected by the unseen realm. So what happens in the unseen realm affects the seen realm. You'll see this, the scenes in Daniel shift between the unseen realm and the seen realm, the presence of God and then problems on the earth. And the point is that in that realm right now, Jesus is alive. He's ruling and reigning as king. You need to know this. 
God is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is God. And the picture of Jesus in Daniel is that he is the king of kings. Whatever king and kingdom or whatever kingdom a man would set up for himself, and we're all trying to do the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar, set up our own little kingdom that we rule over like a little God, ultimately over it all is the real God, Jesus Christ, who's a king. And right now he is ruling over an invisible kingdom and that the day is coming where that invisible kingdom becomes visible. And that's at the second coming of Jesus. And so Daniel is living in Babylon, but he's looking into the kingdom. That he is under King Nebuchadnezzar, but he is under ultimately King Jesus who is over King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he has access to his king who's over his earthly king, and he has access to the kingdom that is over the earthly kingdom. And what this does for Daniel, it gives him perspective. Otherwise, what can happen is men, we lose sight of God, we lose sight of the future, we lose sight of eternity. And we get overwhelmed with the people and the pain and the problems that are right before us and ruling over us. But he has access to the king and the kingdom. Now, what I need you to know is this, you have access to the king of the kingdom. It's interesting because in Nebuchadnezzar's day as king, you couldn't come into his presence unless you were invited. Our king isn't like that. The Bible says that you can enter boldly into his presence in your time of need for help because our King Jesus is a God of grace and his throne room is always open. And so when they're praying and they're worshiping through praising, they are accessing the king in the kingdom. They're inviting the unseen realm into the seen realm. They're inviting God to be at work in their life in a supernatural and extraordinary way. And I just need you to know this as well. You have access to the presence of God through Jesus Christ. You have access to the power of God through the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. The last few, um, he has uh, godly friends, prayer, worship, revelation, which is primarily scripture, but there are other forms of revelation, access to King Jesus and the kingdom. And all of this is driving, the narrative is going forward in Daniel 4 to him being filled with the Spirit. And the most common way that, especially the Old Testament is mistaught is something called moralizing. You just look at somebody and you say, here's the good things they did, here's the bad things they did. Do the good things, not the bad things. The problem with that is we as Christians don't have a biography, we have a testimony. And the difference between a biography and a testimony is this. A biography is, here's what I did. A testimony is, here's what God did. The difference is who the hero of the story is, okay? So um, like, um, what's interesting, just even how our culture tells narratives, Watch the story of Jackie Robinson and it omitted his faith in Jesus Christ, which was the whole thing that gave him the kind of courage that Daniel had. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, they just came out with the big biography on J.R.R. Tolkien and they forgot to tell us he's a Christian, which is the whole reason that he wrote all of the Narnia series and everything else. And so our culture doesn't like testimonies, it likes biographies. Biographies are people are the hero, testimonies is God is the hero, okay? God is the hero. And so it's not humble to talk about awesome things that are happening as long as you give glory to God. You know, like, hey, I got a job, I got healed. I'm learning the Bible. My wife likes me. My kids are talking to me. We're praying together as a family. Thank you, God. All right, so ultimately you can have gratitude for people and things in your life, but the glory goes to God. And what happens in Daniel, we see his amazing character. I mean, just guys, just think of this for a moment. You're a high school kid, literally kidnapped, castrated, vegetarian, in a harem, in Iraq. 
I mean, you're like, how does that kid make it? Well, apart from the Holy Spirit, he doesn't. And he certainly doesn't make it for 69 years. But he makes it by the power of the Holy Spirit for 69 years. So the secret to Daniel is that Daniel's power is not Daniel's power, it's God's power. Okay, that's the secret to Daniel. Because if you're a man looking at your life and saying, I can't do this, God is like, that's why I'm here. Son, you need me, you need me. So twice in chapter four, verse eight and verse 18, the unbelievers look at him and they're just like, here's what they say. He has the spirit of Elohim in him. Uh, that's the original Hebrew um, and it means God or gods. It can be used in a sort of pantheon of ways. But what they're basically saying is this, we have spirits and demons and gods in religion. He has God in him in a way that we don't. He's different than we are. You need to know that if you're a Christian, you have the same power of the Holy Spirit in you that Jesus Christ had and that Daniel had. And Jesus was filled by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. Jesus is the greater Daniel. He walks through the greater Babylon. He overcomes the greater Nebuchadnezzar, Satan himself. And ultimately, how did Daniel have success? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus have success? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we walk in victory? Uh, it says, don't to get drunk on wine, trying to forget your problems, be filled with the Spirit and conquer them. And that's the essence of what Paul is articulating there in uh, Ephesians. And I want you to see this because Nebuchadnezzar is a prototype of a man who does not have the Holy Spirit. Daniel is the prototype for a man who does have the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here at the most basic essence is two kinds of men, men who are filled with the spirit of God and men who are not. So let me just, let's do this, have a little conversation. I got nothing else to do. For Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, what are the differences in their lives between the man who does not have the spirit of God and the man who does have the spirit of God? What's the differences? Fear versus faith. So Nebuchadnezzar is always scared that he's gonna lose his power and authority. And Daniel is even willing to die, right? And it says that Nebuchadnezzar is up all night and Daniel's sleeping pretty good. There's a difference between being primarily motivated by fear of what you cannot control and faith in the one who is in control. Good observation. Humility. Humility. Nebuchadnezzar is not humble. <laughs> You're gonna see in chapter three, he makes a 90 foot golden statue of himself, calls a national holiday so you can worship him, right? That's not humble, <laughs> that's just not humble. But in Daniel, we see humility. Even when Daniel disagrees with those who are in leadership over him, he does this in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, or he and or his friends are always disagreeing with godless commands, but they do so in such a way that is respectful and kind and humble, that even though they disagree, they end up getting promoted. And that's, that's astonishing because they see character through humility, okay? And, uh, and the point of the story is this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Nebuchadnezzar starts at the top and by the time it's all over, he is at the bottom. Daniel starts at the bottom and right now Daniel is with the Lord Jesus in heaven. He has been raised up. Humility waits for God to lift you up. Pride is trying to lift you up apart from God, which means he'll take you down. Good observations. Any other comparisons, contrasts between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah. Uh, Daniel is, is very God-centric. And, and obviously Daniel, absolutely. He's God-centered. Even when he interprets the dream in chapter two, he's like, nobody can interpret it, but the God of heaven can. What he's saying is 
Nebuchadnezzar, you need God too. We all need God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not God-centered. He's Nebuchadnezzar-centered. I mean, here's my kingdom. Here's my harem. Here's my 90-foot golden statue. Here's my religion. You know, I mean, the, the difference is stark. Any other significant? Yeah, Jeff. Yeah, that's a great observation. His point is um, the Nebuchadnezzar is surrounded with people, but he's alone. You don't hear a story about, and his friends were at his side trying to help him, or you know, his wife was praying for him, or his, you know, his kids were interceding. He's all alone. Daniel has real meaningful relationships. And so for a man, I guess the way that we can look at this is some men measured their wealth based upon their kingdom. Others based their wealth upon their relationships. Nebuchadnezzar, he's got a kingdom, but he doesn't have any relationships. Everybody's scared of him. Daniel doesn't own anything. He's a slave, he's actually owned, but he has great relationships. So he's really the rich one. He's really the rich one. It's a great observation. Yeah, jump. Absolutely. That's a great observation. So his point is that Nebuchadnezzar was always taking and Daniel is always giving. Right? Man left to himself, we are consumers. Right? We are not producers. We are takers. We are not givers until the spirit of God comes in us and then gives us the heart of Jesus Christ, which is a heart to give and to bless others. Any other finals? Yeah, done. Nebuchadnezzar is empowered by demonic powers and forces. And Daniel is powered by the spirit of God. And so through the whole book, it's these two kingdoms collide. And it really is uh, the spirit of Babylon, which is the spirit of Satan versus the spirit of God. And that really is the battle. So the reason they keep having collisions, there's different spirits in them. And this is why sometimes, man, you're gonna have conflicts. You're like, I don't know why they hate me. I don't know why it always blows up. If you bring the spirit of God with you and they have the spirit of Babylon in them, there may be a little conflict. So just remain humble, loving, gracious, serving, as Daniel did to prove that the fruit of the spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, which is the emotional life of Jesus. And I'll close with this, and then we'll give you guys some time in groups. Um, if you don't have a copy of it, you can grab it on the way out on this last point. I wrote a book called Spirit-Filled Jesus, and I'll give you a free copy if you wanna learn more about living by the power of the Holy Spirit like Jesus did. Sometimes when we say being Spirit-filled, people are like, that's weird. No, Jesus was Spirit-filled. To be Spirit-filled is to be like Jesus. And Daniel is like Jesus because he's filled by the power of the Holy Spirit as well. I'll give you a free copy on the way out. But in closing, I was, when I was working on that book, um, some years ago, I was sitting on a plane and I had my laptop and I was traveling and it was sort of those, one of those busy packed weeks. So I was looking forward, I had a really long kind of cross country flight. And I thought, this is awesome. I'm gonna sit down on my laptop and I'm gonna get a lot of work done on the power of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit powers our life like Jesus. I sat down on the flight, I flip up my laptop, my battery's like at 1% at the beginning of the cross country flight. And I'm thinking, this is so horrible. I'm writing a book on power and I don't have any power. That is my problem. <laughs> so I'm very, very frustrated. I'm like, I have hours to write on power, but I have no power to write on power. I was very frustrated. So the whole flight, I just kind of sat there a little bit frustrated because I don't like to waste time. The flight landed, I think I dropped a pen. I reached over to pick it up. I kid you not, what was under my seat? 
a power outlet that had been there for about six hours. And I I didn't avail myself to the opportunity to get the power that I needed. And I thought, okay, this is the perfect illustration for my crazy life that oftentimes we have access to God's power. We're living by our own power until eventually we run out of power. And then we're frustrated like, God, where are you? And he's like, I'm right here, plug in. And the way we plug in is godly friends, help us get back to God, prayer, worship, revelation, access to King Jesus and the kingdom. And those are the ways that we plug into the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the power to march forward boldly in whatever Babylonian opposition we have as Daniel did. Okay, let me close with a few of these things. And thank you guys for feedback. How many of you are encouraged by the conversations and the insights of the men in the room? I mean, I I learned some stuff tonight, so thank you. So discussion and prayer, uh, do you have godly friends? Just be honest. Some of you are like, I got buddies. Uh, That's not good, right? That's not good. What you need is godly friends. Number two, what, and we'll leave these on the screen. What is God revealing to you lately? What's he showing you lately? What, what's he telling you? What's, what's he revealing to you? Um, what are area of your life do you need the power of the Holy Spirit most lately? You're like, man, right now, this is, this is my battle and I need God's power to walk faithfully through it. Um, uh, how can we pray for you today? We don't make men pray, but we invite men to pray. We like to say that prayer is not something that we have to do, but it's something that we get to do. And if you wanna pray, we'd love to have you pray. There are, we tend to do it like football huddles where we sort of huddle up. And just so you know, uh, how we pray and how we do this ministry and how we do table discussions is based on decades of faithful ministry from Pastor Darian, who's with us and one of my dear friends. And uh, he's ministered to many of you over the years, but this whole sort of architecting of how we're doing things, I borrowed from my friend, Pastor Darian. So I just wanna publicly thank him and honor him for that. Um, One of the things I first noticed when I showed up to one of the men's events he was leading, the guys would huddle up like a football team and pray. And I thought, that's awesome. So we do that. And, uh, and if you don't wanna pray, you don't have to. And even if you're not a Christian, why don't you just do this? Give a prayer request, let the guys pray and see if God doesn't show up. Let's give them a shot, okay? And then lastly, do you need a Bible? Um, last week, I was honored to give uh, one of the guys his first ever Bible. Let's say you're not a Christian or you're a brand new Christian and you don't have a Bible. We've got ESV study Bibles, which I think is the best. I've got a handful of them and uh, your table lead can come get me. I'll bring you one and give you a hug and tell you I love you because I do. Uh, We'll order more next week. And on my way in, um, as I was praying for you guys, I just thought I would put out two things. Number one, um, let's be praying that God brings lots of men who need Bibles and we can be the men to give them Bibles, amen? That'd be awesome. And if any of you men say, I have a heart for that and I wanna buy Bibles that we give away and that would be part of your tithe because you've got a heart for that, I would welcome you to consider that. And we wanna, we've been giving out a lot of Bibles and we give out good ones. I mean, and once we give you a good Bible, you need to read it. I mean, a cow gave his life. I mean, just, you gotta, you gotta open it up, you gotta read. All right, let me pray and uh, break you guys into groups. Father God, um, Lord, I just remember Daniel getting down and kneeling in prayer and Lord, because he, knelt before the King of Kings, he could stand before the King of Babylon. And so Lord God, for us as men, as we, as we humble ourselves and plug into the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, we, we then can march forward humbly, but boldly and confidently because we've heard from headquarters. God, I wanna thank you for each man who has joined us here tonight, 
both live in the room and live online and those who will access the Bible teaching later. God, I pray that many other churches around the valley and the world would uh, allow us the opportunity to help them start or build a men's ministry uh, because the need is desperate. God, I wanna honor each man who could be doing something else tonight, but is here with us. I wanna pray for any of their kids or spouses who don't yet know the Lord Jesus. I wanna pray for their buddies who are not yet godly friends. They're friends that need to meet God. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to be in and through our conversations and our time of prayer. And I pray that these men would build relationships so that they'd get their crew before their crisis. And that Lord God, they would be faithful for 69 years as Daniel was in Jesus' good name. Amen.